If you're not there already, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. We are about to start our journey through chapter 3, our final leg of the series in 2 Peter. In chapter 3, Peter deals with the doctrine of Christ's second coming, with the idea of Jesus Christ's soon return, and especially the idea that when Christ comes again, it will be accompanied by a destruction of the world by fire. He is especially addressing the need for believers to grow in their confident assurance in this destruction, in this coming of Christ with fire. And so we start a new series today on Christ's second coming, on his soon return, on the destruction of the world by fire. This is part of our larger series in 2 Peter on Christian growth. Remember that we've been in 2 Peter now for quite some time, and we've been studying this idea of what Peter has to say about Christian growth. We can see the main idea of 2 Peter in chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, and we've reviewed this often, but let me read it to you one more time. Peter says there, You therefore, brothers, knowing this beforehand, knowing all the things that he's spoken of in his letter, take care that you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your stability, that beware that you fall, Beware that you fall back. But what does he say in verse 18? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's the apostolic imperative to grow. It's in the form of an imperative because it's a Christian duty. It's something that we are commanded to do. It's something that we have to give our attention and our efforts to. It's rooted in God's grace. And it comes to us in the power of Christ's resurrected glory. And yet it requires our attention and our care. It's a duty, it's an obligation, it's a responsibility that we have in the Christian life to grow in Jesus Christ. And just to review very briefly with you where we've looked so far. So far in the book of Second Peter, Peter has made three points to us about Christian growth. In chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, Peter has said to us that vital to Christian growth is growing in di- diligent pursuit of Christ-likeness. That's the foundation of it all. Growing in holiness. Growing in Christ-likeness. By the power of God looking to the reward, we're to put in diligent effort. We must be growing in this. Growing in Christ-likeness. Giving ourselves to this. Number two in verse, chapter 1, verse 12 through 21, which we had read to us just a moment ago. It's vital to Christian growth to be growing in reminder and recall of the message of Scripture. We're to be growing in our understanding of what the message of the Scriptures is about the kingdom of God and about of its Christ. We're to be growing in our understanding that the Bible is essentially this message, the power coming and majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must be growing in Scripture, growing in holiness, growing in knowledge. In chapter 2, vital to Christian growth is growing in our awareness of false teachers, of wolves, And growing in our awareness that God will soon judge them swiftly with destruction. This is vital to our growth of the Christian life. Growing in holiness, growing in knowledge. And now Peter is turning the page. He's coming into chapter 3. He's starting a new section in his book. He's making his fourth and his final point. Vital to Christian growth is growing in confident assurance of Christ's soon coming. The coming of the kingdom in its fullness, in its power, in its consummated glory is the idea here. And you have to understand here as we come into chapter 3 that Peter's, his, his, his goal here, his intention, his concern here is confident assurance in Christ's soon return. 
And when we say confident assurance, we don't simply mean certainty. We don't need to be growing in our certainty of Christ's second coming. Of course, we need to be doing that. But the idea that Peter's going to be drawing out here in chapter 3 is that we need to be growing in our trusting, eager expectation and anticipation for His second coming. There needs to be a longing and a desire for His second coming. There needs to be a longing and a desire to see the destruction of the world that comes with His second coming. There needs to be in the believer a spirit of hastening of that day. A longing for it. A praying for it. That Jesus would come soon. That this world would be burned up with fire soon. And this is something that Christians need to grow in. You and I, we have to grow in this, Peter is saying. Because it doesn't come natural to us, does it? By nature, we love this world. Even as believers, we're still married to this world in so many ways. We're invested in it. We don't want to see this world come to an end. We don't want our lives upended with the destruction of the world by fire. But this is the opposite of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian desires this. He longs for it. He has the spirit of hastening in his soul. He wants to see it come quickly. And Peter's exhorting us. He's encouraging and he's teaching us here in chapter 3 that we need to be growing in this. We need to be developing this spirit and this longing and this desire. Well, here today in our text where we're getting started as we begin our series in chapter 3, Peter's essentially making this point. To find confident assurance in Christ's soon coming, we must remember the gospel. We must remember the peace that it brings to us. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. A gracious apostolic reminder of the coming of Christ's kingdom. A gracious reminder of the gospel. This is foundational here in chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, to everything that Peter is going to be saying for the rest of chapter 3. It's transitional. It's foundational. It does three things for us, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2, first of all, tunes us into the idea of Christ's return. Get us thinking about this idea once again. Especially its swiftness, its soonness, its nearness. The second thing it does is it reminds us of why we have confidence on the day of His return. Why we ought to have confidence in the day of His return. Why we ought to long for it. And then thirdly, it reminds us again of the need that we have for reminders of the kingdom. And what it means that the kingdom is coming soon. So look at the text one more time with me. Three things here. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, he says. Beloved, in both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Again, we can break this into three sections. Number one, in verse one, Peter tunes us into the idea of Christ's return. Secondly, in verse 1, he reminds us why we should have confidence on the day of Christ's return. And finally, in verse 1 and 2, he reminds us that we need reminding of his soon return and the coming of his kingdom. So number one, very simply here, Peter tunes us into the idea of Christ's return, the soonness, the nearness of it. Look at verse 1 one more time. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up. Stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Let's look at a few things from verse 1. We're going to deal with a technical issue first so that we can just get it out of the way, but it's important and it's a little interesting here. Notice this language that Peter begins with. He says, this is now my second letter. I'm just going to mention briefly that we do not know 
what the first letter is. Now, most people are going to assume that it's 1 Peter. <laughs> well, that, it's obviously what Peter must be referring back to, but we don't know that. The, the point that I want to make to you is that we can't be certain about that. We can't be sure of that. And the reason we can't be sure of that is because we do have examples in the New Testament, especially with Paul, of letters that were written by the apostles that weren't preserved for us. So we don't know for certain if the letter that Peter's referring to there, his first letter was 1 Peter. There might have been a letter in between 1 and 2 Peter that we don't know. In fact, there's a lot of good reasons to think so. But if you'll call back to Paul's corpus in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he mentions that he had written the Corinthians previously. So there's a letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. Zero Corinthians, if you want to do the math. And we don't have it. It's not been preserved in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. It's not been preserved for us. Uh, Paul also mentions a letter to Laodicea in the book of Colossians that hasn't been preserved for us. He tells the Colossians that he wants them to read the letter to Laodicea. He tells the Colossians he wants the letter of Colossians read in Laodicea. But we don't have the letter to Laodicea. So this is something that we see in the Scriptures. So when we come to this text and Peter says, I'm writing to you my second letter, we can't assume that his first letter is 1 Peter. It's a little bit of a technical issue. This shouldn't give us any trouble because the Spirit has preserved the letters that we do have for our benefit and our well-being and everything for life and godliness has been recorded for us. And I do mention it briefly for a, a practical reason. And that is because since we don't know what Peter's first letter is and we can't be certain of that, it might be 1 Peter, it might not. We can't use chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 as a purpose statement for 1 Peter or 2 Peter. And I've already taught that to you and made that clear to you. The purpose statement of 2 Peter is found in the last two verses of chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. A lot of people like to come to verse 1 and 2 and try to make it an overall purpose statement for 1 and 2 Peter. And it just doesn't hold because we don't know what letter Peter is referring back to. No, instead of what's happening here in verse 1 and 2, Peter is transitioning to this whole discussion of Christ's soon return, and he's setting the stage for it, and he's laying the foundations for what we need to prepare ourselves to be confidently assured in the day of final destruction of all things when Jesus Christ returns in fury and in fire to destroy his enemies. So secondly, then, notice this language once more. There's another small point here. This is relevant, though, to our topic. Look at what he says here. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. I want you to focus in this little word now. It can be, tra- it can be translated and probably should be translated already. This is already my second letter to you is the idea that Peter is making here. This word that he uses now is used in other places in the New Testament to indicate urgency or finality. We can see it indicating urgency in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, when John the Baptist is speaking to the people, and especially to the Pharisees, and he says, even now, which is to say, already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here, John the Baptist is indicating a soonness, a nearness of the coming of God's judgment, which is the reason why the people need to repent. The axe is already at the root of the trees. There's a swiftness, there's a soonness, there's an urgency in this message that's being communicated. This is the word that Paul, uh, Peter is using here. Now, it takes on the sense of finality in Luke chapter 11, verse 7. And this is what that text says. He says he will answer, the, Jesus is telling the parable of the man who has the family come to him late at night and they knock on his door and he won't answer. <laughs> 
And they keep knocking and they keep knocking and they keep knocking. So finally the man shouts through the window and he says, he will answer them from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. It's already shut. There's no going back. I'm not opening it. It brings this sense of finality. My children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. Peter uses this word now, already. This is already my second letter. This is already my Deuteron letter. He's bringing to bear this idea of swiftness, soonness, urgency. He's getting us prepared. He's setting the tone for what he's about to speak about in Christ's second coming and the total destruction of the universe by fire. There's a swiftness to it, an urgency to it, a looming finality. There's an alreadiness to this. And what he's doing is he's using this idea that it's already a second letter. That's the idea that he's communicating to them. He wants them to think about the time that has gone past since his first letter. He's thinking, think about how quickly the time has gone by. We've all experienced this, haven't we? When we look back in our lives, how fast the clock moves. That's what he's communicating. This is already my second letter. And I've already shown you, brothers and sisters, from 2 Peter, these are his final words. This is his last letter. Peter's on the, he's about to die. He's about to be martyred. And he knows it. He's writing this letter to the churches, to us. That's his last words. Peter is saying, this is, not, this is not just already my second letter. This is already my last letter. This is already the end of my apostolic ministry. This is already the end of my life. It's gone by so fast. It was swift. There's no going back. He's setting the tone here for the whole message that he's going to be communicating to us in chapter 3 on the swift return of Christ coming. The time is short. He's setting up the need for a confident assurance in Christ's return. We need to be ready for it. We need to be longing for it, desiring it. It's not something that we should be afraid of. It's not something that we should be trying to put off or putting out of our minds or ignoring. It should be something that's exciting to us, something we desire, something we long for. But he sets up the need for this confidence, this longing, this desire by pressing upon us urgency and finality of it all. Well, then he gets into the meat of what he has to say here as a foundation for this confident assurance. Peter reminds us of the basis for the confidence that we can have on this day of Christ's return. He mentions two things in verse 1 that I want to draw out for you. He reminds his readers of two things. He reminds you of two things this morning that will help you to have confidence and readiness and longing and desire for that day. Look at the language that he uses here in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter is here reminding us, and the Holy Spirit through Peter is reminding us here this morning, that we can have confidence in Christ's second return because we are loved by God. We are beloved. Let me briefly say that this term beloved is used often in the New Testament. If you've read the New Testament, you know, if you've read any of the letters of the apostles, how often they use this term. Even Peter uses this term very often. It's unusual to focus on it in a sermon, beloved, because it's so normal. It's so typical. They're simply just addressing believers. But it's justified here. There's a reason why Peter has used this term, and it's justified for us to take some time and to focus on this term, because we've just come out of chapter 2, <laughs> And you remember the series in chapter 2 on false teachers and how we have to be aware of them. You remember how dark and heavy and serious the tone of that, 
of chapter 2 was and of the messages that we preach from it were. Because it reminds us of the sinfulness of the world that we live in and the dangers that are surrounding us. And it makes us to look inward at ourselves and to see the sin that still remains in us. And it was a heavy chapter. It spoke to us of wicked, evil men and of God's judgment upon them. And so what Peter is doing here as he enters into chapter 3 is he's refreshing us. He's reminding us, brothers, what is said about the false teachers is not true of you. You are beloved. You are beloved. And he's reminding us that we are loved by God. And it's helpful for us then to focus our attention on this just for a few minutes and remind ourselves what the New Testament teaches us about being beloved. We have to have this. There's no eager longing for Christ's return if we don't remember that we're loved by God. The basis for our confidence, the basis for our longing for that day is the knowledge that God loves us, that we are beloved. And so you can think of all the passages that come to mind here. We want to touch on some of them. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 really quickly. To be reminded of what it means that we are beloved of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. We are beloved of God in Jesus Christ. And God proves His love to us and all the spiritual blessings that He's given to us in Jesus Christ. I hope you think about this passage often and regularly. We are beloved by God in Jesus Christ. And that means that God is our Father, that He elected us, that He adopted us, that He's destined us for holiness. And our whole life has become a trophy of His grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse... What love? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. We are loved in Jesus Christ. We are united to Christ. God has united us to His own Son, to the Lord Jesus by covenant. He's, He's brought us into the kingdom of Christ. What love? What love? And the evidence of this love are all these blessings that He's mentioned that we receive in Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Spiritual blessings. Heavenly blessings. Verse 4, He mentions the first one. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, in Christ we are chosen by God. We are elected by Him. He loves us. Before the foundation of the world, we have the confidence that He knows us, that He's picked us, that He's chosen us. That He's destined us to be united to Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers, if you're in Christ, you are loved. You are loved before the world began. You are loved by God as a Father to you. He's, you've been on His mind as long as eternity has been. <laughs> From the very depths of His soul, He knows you. You are loved by God. I mean, there's, our words fall short to express the glory of that, doesn't it? In Christ we're elected, even as He chose you before the foundation of the world. In Christ you were chosen and predestined for holiness, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Holy and blameless. God has chosen you for sanctification, for purity. Now this doesn't mean anything to the sinner who doesn't believe in Christ, to the hardened sinner. But if you're in Christ, brothers, this is the most wonderful blessing. What love God has shown you that He chose you to make you holy and pure and blameless, free of sin, to teach you His own love, His own grace, to impart it to you. You're loved. 
Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He's adopted us as sons. We are loved by God. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are in Christ. In Christ we are elected. We are, we are being sanctified. And we are all of this to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. So that the whole world looks at us and they see the work of God in us and they say, this is God's work. This is grace. Look at what love God has loved them with. And they glorify our Father who's in heaven. Brothers, you're loved. (laughs) There's no eager expectation of Christ's return. There's no confidence in that day unless you know that you're loved. And you're loved in Christ. And that love in Christ is based and rooted in His atoning work and that's what we see turn with me to first john 4 10 that speaks to us of god's love and what it means to be beloved and just drink this in brothers the only reason i'm reviewing it for you i know you know it already but we got to hear it again (laughs) we got to be reminded as peter keeps saying to us over and over and over and over again we've got to be able to recall these things we are loved by god which means independent of ourselves or independent of anything that we could bring, and we are loved with a love that is as deep as eternity is, which is expressed to us in the atoning work. We are beloved, we are, we are beloved by divine love, full, free, atoning love. First John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. There's really two things to notice there in 1 John 4.10. The first is, is that God's love for us is independent of us. It doesn't depend upon our love. It doesn't depend upon our loveliness. It depends wholly and entirely on the fact that God chose to love us. It's God's love for us. It's full. It's free. It comes from the depths of His own being. It, it's based in who He is as God. In this same context, John says, God is love. And if you're in Christ, God has loved you. And this is love, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us. But notice, look, look at the depth of His love. Look at the fullness of His love. It's an atoning love. He loved us so much that when we had sinned and violated His justice and His law, and we had sinned away His love, He sent His own Son to be the sacrifice for our sins, to die in our place, to shed His blood for our redemption, to forgive us of our sins so that we might have peace with God again. He loves us so much. If you're in Christ, He loves you so much. He doesn't spare His own Son. He pours out His wrath, the wrath that's due to you upon His Son in order to spare you His wrath. We are loved. If we're not thinking about this this love of God, we can never have a confident assurance of Christ's second return. We can never have a hastening spirit in our souls. This is the foundation of it. This is what Peter is saying. Brothers, you're beloved. (laughs) You're beloved in Christ with a divine love. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. You're loved with an effectual love, apart from you, apart from your works, apart from your power. Some of this overlaps, but each of these texts brings out a a different element here that we want to look at. 
We're beloved apart from works. We're loved effectually. <laughs> this is what he says in Ephesians 2, 8, verse, through 10, uh, verse 8 through 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. God has produced in you faith. He's produced in you a belief that as I'm preaching to you and I'm saying the Lord loves you, you say amen <laughs> from the depths of your soul. You receive it. You receive it by faith. This isn't something that you do. It's something that God's doing in you by his Holy Spirit. Even the faith that you have has been granted to you by God. Even your love for Christ and your desire for him is something that God has placed into your heart first. You see, so it's effectual love. <laughs> it's produced something. It's changed you. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. The only one who can boast here is God, <laughs> because he saved you, because he loves you. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk, we should walk in them. <laughs> How can it be by our works if God created us for those works? We're God's, we're God's craftsmanship. We're his workmanship. His love has recreated us. It's made us new. And our souls rejoice. <laughs> this is what Peter wants us to be thinking about. You're beloved, brothers. <laughs> You're beloved of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we're beloved as sons. We've already touched on this in Ephesians 1, 5. But here we have it stated to us in really wonderful terms. Verse, chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, this is the love of God, brothers. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, God has loved us with a love that does not treat us like slaves so that we might be in bondage to fear. God loves us as sons by adoption so that we might draw near to him. This idea of Abba, Father, of course, is the idea of calling God dear father. It's the idea of intimacy. It's the picture of a son or a boy or a girl or a daughter running up to dad when he comes home and grasping at his knees. Right? Dear father, Abba father. The contrast that Paul is painting here is the slave runs when the master comes home. The child runs to the father to embrace him. Abba father, dear father, loved father. We are loved. We are beloved. This is vital to our growth and a confident assurance of Christ's return that we remember that we are loved. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. I'm just going to read it really briefly. You've, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. God cares for us. He protects us. He shapes us. He molds us like a loving father. He works with us. We are loved by God. Now, I said all of these things just to remind you of what it means to be loved by God. And really, we've just touched on it, haven't we? And our souls say amen. It's vital to our confidence in Christ's return to a spirit of hastening that we remember that we are loved. All of this is rooted in God's love for us and all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ and all the blessings that we have in the kingdom of Christ.
And then secondly, then, Peter brings out something else here. He says, we have confidence and we have desire for the second coming of Christ because we've been purified. He says this in verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. That's the term I want you to focus on for just a few minutes. I'm stirring up your sincere mind. Peter wishes to remind his readers of their status before God as those who have been made holy. Sincerity is the idea of purity. Your minds have been purified. What he's referring to here is baptism. By our union with Christ, we have been made holy. Let's talk about this term sincere mind for a few moments. This term sincere mind can be translated wholesome thinking. Wholesome thinking. This is a This is a philosophical term in Peter's day, touching on the perennial philosophy of the philosophers like Plato. Plato used to use this term, sincere mind, as to mean purified reasoning. And what Plato meant was this, thinking that was clear of emotion, undistracted by bias, and that functioned properly. In other words, the conclusions followed the premises. Good reasoning, wholesome mind, sincere mind, purified reason. Now, Peter is not talking about purified reason, but he's adapting this term that was used by Plato to the Christian in order to say that the Christian's mind through baptism into the Holy Spirit, into Christ, and the new creation has been cleared of corruption and undistracted by the world and made to properly function by trusting in the final authority of God's Word. We've been baptized. We've been cleansed. Our minds have been purified. We've been made holy. The dictionary definition of wholesome means healthy. That which has undergone the remedial healing influences of a medical treatment. This is something, brothers, that's true for us. Objectively in our justification. Subjectively it's true for us. Definitively by our union with Jesus Christ. And it's something that we experience progressively in our own lives as the Holy Spirit is working us in this life more and more holiness. This seed of holiness has been planted in us. We are new creatures in Christ. We were dead, but now we're alive. We've been transformed, and we're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter's touching on when he uses this term, sincere mind. He's talking about your baptism. He's talking about the washing and the cleansing and the purification that has occurred to you because you are, that has happened to you because you're united to Jesus Christ. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed, you were purified, you were justified in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we've been washed, regenerated, renewed by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, we have been made holy by the will of God. And 1 John 3, 9, God has planted his holy seed in our hearts and in our souls and in our lives. We have sincere minds. This is especially encouraging to his readers coming off of chapter 2, where all of those sins of the false teachers were dragged up and exposed. And we saw even a picture of our own depravity and the remaining sin that's in us. And Peter is reminding us here, brothers, you are loved by God. Your sins have been forgiven. He's made the atonement for you. And you've been washed. You're clean in the Holy Spirit. You have new minds, renewed minds. This is foundational for a confident assurance of Christ's soon return. We've got to remember that we're loved. 
We've got to remember that we've been baptized, we've been washed, we've been made new. This is foundational. Well, in verse 1 and 2, thirdly, Peter goes on to make his final point. Peter reminds us of the need of regular reminders of the soon coming of Christ's kingdom. We could summarize that point by saying this, baptized minds need to be reminded, reminded again and again. But look at how he puts it here in verse 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. There's a lot going on there in verse 2. First of all, notice here in the text that Peter is emphasizing again the need to be reminded. We've already covered this in our series, but just briefly, let me cover it again. See the repetition that Peter is using here. It's almost tiresome, isn't it? I mean, it's almost annoying. I'm stirring you up, he says, by way of reminder that you should remember. (laughs) This is coming off the heels of what he already said from chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, which I had read to you before the sermon began. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I'm reminding you anyway, Peter is saying. You've got to be reminded. You need to hear it again and again and again. It has to be regular. I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. We've got to be stirred up by it, Peter is saying. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall these things at any time. Reminder, reminder, reminder. He's repeating the same uh, uh, idea here again. Reminder, reminder, reminder. By way of reminder that you should remember. (laughs) He's making his point. But notice the tone here in verse 2, that you should remember. This term should, focus on it for just a minute, because certainly it's an imperative. You need to remember this, Peter is saying. He's saying that. He's saying you must remember this. It's not an option. It's an obligation. It's a duty. But what I want to bring out here is that there's there's a loving tone to what Peter is saying. It's not simply an imperative of need or must, it's something that follows consequentially and naturally from the things that he's already mentioned of being beloved, of being washed. Brothers, you should remember the predictions of Christ's coming because you're loved by God. You ought to do it because you're baptized, because your mind has been made sincere, purified, and cleansed. This is what Peter's getting at here. You should remember It's something that we ought to do. It's something that we must do because we're loved. Because we're loved, because we're washed, because we're cleansed. Our guilt has been removed. The condemnation is God. God has forgiven us of our sins. He loves us. So then what is it that we should remember? Well, look at how Peter puts it here. We should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. I love the way Peter uses language here. Notice this language. The predictions of the Old Testament prophets and the commandment of the New Testament Lord. I do want you to notice there that he doesn't say our Lord and Savior, which often the apostles do, but here he emphasizes that he's the Lord and Savior. He's absolute king of all things. He's been given all authority in heaven and earth. We ought to, we ought to remember. <laughs> we ought to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the king through your apostles. He means the predictions of the coming of Christ and His kingdom. And the obligation, the commandment that comes with it. 
to repent and to believe the gospel. In other words, what Peter's getting at here, he uses his own words. They're interesting words. They're going to help us here in just a moment. Peter is saying exactly what Jesus said in the gospel message in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is, it is near. It has come. Repent and believe the gospel. The predictions of the Old Testament prophets is the predictions of the coming of Christ and his kingdom. The commandment of the king is to repent and believe the gospel in light of the coming of his kingdom. And this is what Peter is reminding us. Because we're loved, because we're baptized, we ought to remember that Christ has come. He's coming and he will come. And therefore, we must repent and believe the gospel. It's interesting how Peter puts this again, I say. The predictions of the Old Testament prophets and the commandment of the Lord. Now, we're used to thinking of the commandment of the Old Testament and the promises and the message of the New Testament. But Peter reverses it. (laughs) He says the predictions of the Old Testament. He's talking about the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament and the law that is given in light of it in the New Testament. And so Peter, he likes to do this, I think, quite a bit. And I've tried to bring it out where I can. He likes to put things on their head. He likes to, he likes to subvert our expectations, but in a wonderful way. <laughs> We're used to thinking of the Old Testament law and the New Testament promises. But he says the Old Testament promises and the New Testament law. The Old Testament gospel, the prediction that Jesus Christ was coming... The predictions that we find in the Old Testament. When he says to us, we must remember the predictions of the holy prophets. He's talking about the coming of Christ. This is usually in the Old Testament related to the day of the Lord. The idea in the Old Testament of the day of the Lord is communicated in a plenary sense, which means a full sense, which means when the the Old Testament speaks about the coming of the day of the Lord, it's often difficult to see what exactly point in time they are looking forward to. Are referring to in their prophecies? Are they looking forward to the first coming of Christ and his incarnation? Are they looking at his earthly ministry? Are they looking at the day of Jesus Christ, which is the here and now, his current rule and reign and the expansion of his kingdom on earth? Or are they looking forward to his, the consummation of his kingdom and his second return with the destruction of the world by fire and the renewal of all things? It's hard to say. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, they sort of jarble it all together. <laughs> it's all found in one passage. In fact, that's why I had Isaiah 9 read to you, verse 2 through 7, because you can exactly see that there. In fact, pull out your unison reading for just a moment, and I'll show this to you. Look at how Isaiah predicts the coming of Christ. He sort of sees the whole thing at once, just in seven verses or six verses. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. The New Testament makes explicit that that is fulfilled in Christ's earthly ministry in Galilee. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, of them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy in the harvest. That's a reference to the expansion of the kingdom and the ingathering of the nations. In other words, the day of Pentecost onward, even to this day. We're living in verse 3. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, that's the enemies of God's people, the enemies of those who trust in him, you have broken as on the day of Midian, which is a reference to his death on the cross when he won victory through weakness and humility. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's a reference to his second coming and the total destruction of his enemies by fire. 
And you can see it's all in one. It's just in a few, few verses. And then, he, and then he relates this to his incarnation. The reason why we have confidence that, this is what, that, that the kingdom is coming in this way. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government, the kingdom, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's coming to win total and absolute victory over the enemies of God. Which means peace. Peace with God. Peace among one another. Peace among brothers. Peace everlasting. Peace. Of the increase of His kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. It's a holy kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. There's the already not yet part of his kingdom. And Isaiah sees it. You know, the book of Isaiah is a book of visions. He sees this vision. He sees it all at once. The coming of Christ. His first coming. His ongoing coming in his rule and reign. The consummation of his coming and his final return. Peter is saying you must remember. You should remember because you're loved and you're baptized. The predictions of the... Old Testament prophets. We could go to Malachi 4 and see the same phenomenon. where he, he's, he, All together he sees Christ return. He sees the, the fire and the flame. He sees the advancement of Christ's kingdom. He sees him in his earthly ministry. All in the span of one chapter. We must remember the coming of Christ's kingdom. We must, we must remember his victory, his triumph, his defeat of the forces of darkness. We must remember his humiliation. We must remember his exaltation. We must remember his descension. We must remember his ascension. We must remember his first coming. We must remember his second coming. We must remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. Brothers, the good news of the Old Testament is that Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming the first time to deal with sin. He's coming in the advancement of his kingdom today to gather in the nations. And he's coming to consummate all things in the destruction of this world. This is what Peter means. You ought to remember it. (laughs) You got to remember it. All of these predict peace. Peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace from every enemy, even death. As Jarrett preached to us last week. I'm so thankful that you preached your sermon last week. I mean, it just played right into all of this. So that's the Old Testament gospel. Peter's saying we must remember it. Jesus Christ has a kingdom, and it's coming. It has come. It will come. He says we must remember the New Testament law, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. All the Old Testament promises, they were always accompanied by calls to the people of God to holiness and repentance. And so Peter here mentions the New Testament commandment of the already come and ascended and returning Jesus. And that's the commandment to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said, because the kingdom had come, was coming, and will come, therefore, repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. This was the essential message of all the apostles. Acts chapter 26, verse 19. Turn there with me. I'm going to show you some samples in the New Testament of this essential message, which we see again and again and again. Repent. Because Christ has come and is coming, repent. Uh, Paul, in Acts chapter 26, verse 19, he's before King Agrippa. He's making a defense of his ministry. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, 
I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now just for a moment, remember that that's the vision that he had of Jesus Christ when the ascended Christ appeared to Paul and commissioned him as an apostle. And you remember that that experience for Paul was overwhelming. He was blinded by the light of Jesus Christ. There was a burning brightness to the presence of Christ. And he had to be healed in his eyes just because of the experience itself. And now he's recounting this, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And you can see there as Paul defends his apostolic ministry and the message of Christianity, how he summarized it, the predictions of the Old Testament prophet and the commandment to repent and to bear fruits keeping with repentance. To repent. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. You can turn there if you would like. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Paul opening his letter to Romans, identifying himself and his calling as an apostle. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There we have the predictions of the Old Testament prophets and the commandment, the obedience of faith, to believe in Jesus Christ and to live lives worthy of faith in Him. Uh, the Apostle John, in his quaint simplicity, his rustic simplicity, look with me at 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. He puts it this way. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. There we have it, love and faith. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent from sin and turn to Christ in faith and trusting faith. Repentance in the Word of God is defined by God's law to conform ourselves to it, which is embodied in the life and the teaching of Jesus and His apostles and borne out in our lives only through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the New Covenant, therefore, repentance is part of our inheritance. It's something that Christ brings to us. It's a gift of God to us. I say that to encourage you this morning. And so we're never thinking legalistically, although we do pursue repentance fervently and with great diligence. But this is the commandment to repent. Now let me just say very briefly, when we think of repentance in the New Testament, we're not talking about a perfect life. We're not talking about getting ourselves together. When the New Testament, especially when Jesus talks about repentance, he's talking about this decisive break with sin that we make under the power of the Holy Spirit, his influence in our life. By faith, we break with sin. We turn away from sin as such. We believe what God has said about sin. We believe that what God calls sin is sin. We acknowledge that we are sinners and that we deserve punishment and wrath because of it. 
and we call out to God and say, I'm done with sin. That's repentance. I turn from sin. I turn from my sins. Help me. Save me. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the repentance that Jesus is talking about here. A lot of times people misunderstand what that means. They think it means to get your life together and then come to Jesus. No, believing in Jesus. We make a break with sin. That's what repent. Turning from sin, turning to God, turning to him for help. And that's what's meant in that commandment, to repent, to turn from sin. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come. He has come with power. He is coming with power. He will come with power. (laughs) He is the glorious, majestic one. And he will judge the world when he returns. Therefore, repent. He's already won victory over sin. Why are you still remaining in it? Turn. Repent. And so it's essentially the message of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. It's a holy kingdom. Christ has won victory over sin. Repent and believe. Enter the kingdom. Notice finally from verse 2 that this message comes to us through your apostles. Your apostles. What Peter's emphasizing here is not only the apostles, but the kingdom itself is God's gift to you. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you believe in Christ Jesus, like Luke chapter 12, verse 32 says, it's the, it's the good pleasure of your Father to give you the kingdom. In the New Testament scriptures, the gospel, the idea of gospel, you've probably heard it said that the gospel refers to good news. But it's more than that in, in the context in which the New Testament was written. It's not just good news. It's the good news of a king's victor in war. And it was oftentimes accompanied by tokens of the spoils of war and of his victory to assure the people that they had won, that the king had won, and that he had plundered his enemies. That's what gospel means. That's what the term means. The apostles are, is a term related to gospel because the apostles, the emissary or the delegate who brings that message and those tokens of blessing and those tokens of the spoils of war. And so when Peter calls the apostles here, your apostles, what he's capturing is this idea that God has granted you the kingdom. Christ has won this victory, and and he has brought it to you in order to give you the spoils of his victory. And this is what Peter's calling on us to remember. We're beloved, and we're washed, and we've been given a kingdom This is vital to our growth in a confident assurance, a longing desire for the destruction of this world and the return of Jesus Christ. Let me conclude this sermon with just a few observations. Let me make application. First of all, to you who are outside of Christ, the message of what Peter has said is clear. The kingdom has come, it is coming, and it will come in consummated power and glory. The world This world and sin and death will be destroyed finally in a consummated way when Christ returns. God promises by fire things that we'll be looking at in the Sundays to come. As things stand now, if you're outside of Christ, you're in the wrong kingdom. You're in the kingdom of darkness. You still love and are married to your sins. You're still fearing death. Christ's commandment to you, the ascended Lord who has won victory over the kingdom of darkness, is commanding you with great grace and patience to defect, to turn, to flee, to surrender to him, 
And he promises you that if you do, you will be granted his kingdom, a share in it. You'll be granted the blessings and the spoils of war. You will know what it means to have peace with God. You will know what it means to be beloved by God, as we have already explained. You will know what it means to be washed and renewed and made new in him. Repent and believe the gospel is the message of the king. And it's my message to you this morning on his behalf, and it's the message of the whole church. Repent and believe. Come, he says. The spirit says come. The church says come and receive the kingdom that he has won. He's offering it to all. That's the message of the gospel. If you're outside of Christ, repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. If you're in Christ, three things. Number one, you need to hear this message again and again and again and again. You need to be regularly reminded Jesus Christ has already won He's already ascended. He's already sitting at his father's right hand. He's already ruling and reigning. He's already dispensing every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, richly lavishing him upon his people through his apostles. And it's come to you. And you need to hear it again and again. You need to receive it again and again and again and again. You need to be reminded of the message again and again and again and again. And you also need to be reminded that it's coming to you in peace, love, faith, and grace soon. The consummation of this kingdom is soon. It's not far off. The day of the Lord hastens. It draws near. And we are commanded to pray that it would come soon. We are commanded to pray that it would hasten. So we need to hear it over and over again. Number two, because we need to hear it over and over again, we need to make the means of grace a priority. And I'm not going to belabor this point, but you know, brothers and sisters, how important Sunday is to keep the Sabbath day. Remember the commandment is to remember to keep it holy, to remember it, to remember the day in order to keep it holy. Remember Sunday. Remember our stated meetings. Remember prayer meeting. Remember worship service. Remember fellowship meal. Remember our afternoon teaching session. You've got to keep getting reminded. You've got to be here. Why? Because you need to remember the kingdom is coming. And you need to remember that God loves you and that you're washed and that you're cleansed. You need to remember the prophecies of the Old Testament. You need to remember the commandments of the New Testament. And this is the means that God has ordained to that end. So in Christ, remember that you've got to hear this message. You've got to have it. You've got to have it again and again and again. And the means that God has ordained is the preaching, prayer, baptism, Lord's Supper. He communicates. God has promised to be present with us in these things to communicate his love, to communicate his grace, to communicate washing and renewal, to communicate knowledge. And then third application, and finally, brothers and sisters, in light of the things that we've looked at, love your Savior, the Lord Jesus. (laughs) Love him. In him, you are beloved of God. In him, you are washed and cleansed and renewed. And in him, you have been given a kingdom. Therefore, love him. Love him with all your heart. Long for him. Desire to see him. Look forward to his return. You see, everything that Peter has said here is foundational. It's somewhat transitional, and it's foundational. These things are vital to growing in a confident assurance of Christ's return.